This is the NOAA Ocean Podcast. I'm Marissa Anderson. This is the second half of a two-part episode. If you missed the first one, check out our show notes or look for it in your podcast player of choice. It's called Connecting the Dots Through Modeling, Part 1. We're joined today by Dr. Tracy Fanara, NOAA's National Ocean Service Coastal Modeling Portfolio Manager. She manages the portfolio for offices within NOS, along with the entire suite of NOS modeling efforts. In our last episode, we talked about how modeling connects the dots and allows us to see the bigger picture of our world. We also discussed how local governments, decision makers, coastal community members, regional associations, and those who use navigation and ports benefit through the information provided by these coastal models. In part two of our episode, we dive deeper into how modeling helps NOAA carry out its mission and discuss specific case studies and benefits to those who are impacted. I'd like to start by exploring how modeling supports some other NOAA mission areas. Let's start out by talking about how modeling supports coastal resilience and reduces risks for coastal communities. So all of our models are really focused on supporting coastal resilience and reducing risk, getting information to the public, to stakeholders, so that they, they can make best decisions and best practices to protect the public. So models can support coastal resilience and reduce risk because we have been doing this for so long. Now we have trends of changes on our coastlines. We can make predictions and forecasts from our real-time models, from our physical models. And then on top of that, you know, with our base accurate physical models and adding these ecological models onto it, uh, these chemical models, we can answer more questions. So understanding that rising ocean that serves those, uh, and then all those ecological aspects that we just talked about, like pathogens, algae blooms, hypoxia, things like that, it all supports coastal communities making decisions to protect lives and livelihoods. So I would assume that models support the management of marine and coastal ecosystems in a similar fashion by providing valuable data to those who depend on it. Models can support management of marine and coastal ecosystems by providing information to, to stakeholders, to decision makers, so that they can, they can relay information to the public. They can decide where to build, where not to build. They can decide where to put water, water pipelines. They can decide what their, you know, capacity of their wastewater system needs to be. They, you know, they can tell their, their fisheries what their productivity might be, what, what the surge might be, what the flooding might be. So these models absolutely support the management of these coastal and marine ecosystems, as well as reduce risk for coastal communities. Can models aid in emergency response efforts, such as a chemical spill? Oh, absolutely. ORNR is an NOS office that is really focused on, on chemical spills. NOS plays a huge role in figuring out the movement of a chemical spill, where it's going to be, what it's going to impact. So these models can tell the public or tell stakeholders, management, decision makers, exactly what threats their coastline is going to face and what geographic locations are going to be impacted. And so when we have a spill, these models can tell us how that plume is going to move in the water, where it's going to reach and who it's going to impact. What are considered to be the biggest threats to coastal communities and how do coastal models help to mitigate those threats? That's a great question. And, and depending on who you ask, 
they'll probably give you a different answer because we have so many things that are changing. You know, ocean acidification, sea level rise, uh, saltwater encroachment onto drinking water systems, coral bleaching, uh, changing ecology, changing ocean currents, changing migration patterns of, of animals like algae blooms, hypoxia. Um, it just depends who you ask and where they are as to what their concern is. That's where one of the things that my personal goal is focused on is getting people to realize that all these systems are connected. So caring about the wildfires in the West when you're on the Gulf of Mexico or, you know, the, the shellfish farmers in New England, it's all connected and it's all eventually going to impact you. And I, I think that people in uh, Michigan were pretty surprised when they saw the smoke from the wildfires in the West coming over. They had no clue why it was so dark outside. And I think that that was a big eye opener right there for people in that area. And as far as, you know, our coastal oceans go and everybody impacts each other. 40% of the United States draining into the Mississippi Atchafalaya watershed, 70% of that um, nutrients that's coming into this area is from agriculture. That increase in nutrients is causing algae blooms and hypoxia areas with low oxygen that are lethal to the benthic ecology, any sessile or stagnant organisms. And also because of how big it is, it can threaten fish or any kind of animal swimming through as well. How do we get, you know, that hypoxic event completely crumbles that economy for shellfish farmers, for fishermen in that area that rely on that for, for their living, for food, for money? How do we get that farmer in Iowa to care about that shellfish farmer in the Gulf of Mexico? And I think that, you know, through this whole process of understanding users' needs and bringing those needs to the forefront so that everybody in the United States and the world can see what people are facing and when so that they understand how they impact someone else and how someone else might impact them and how all of these systems are connected can really be world-changing. But to answer your question, the biggest threats as humans, we always care about what the biggest threat is to us. Um, so it's hard to answer that uh, because depending on where you are and who you are, you're going to answer that question differently. So can models provide forecasts and tell where harmful algae blooms take place? Well, the physical models act as a kind of a... Um, a base or a consistent data stream for which the, the harmful algae models can build upon. And those models can be predictive depending on which model it is. It could be real time or it can take into account predictive tools that, that can forecast three to five days or long-term forecasts. So in the Great Lakes, for example, the harmful algae blooms that occur there, cyanobacteria blooms, there are forecasting models in place. Now, doing something like a forecasting model with Florida red tide is a lot more difficult long term because there's so many questions that we still have about that particular species and about the phytoplankton community chemistry initiation in the Gulf of Mexico, where we haven't had those ecological, chemical, biological models in addition to the physical models to really understand all of those interactions in a lake like Lake Okeechobee or our Great Lakes, it's more contained and we know a lot more about cyanobacteria, the initiation, the termination than we do with Florida red tide. 
so I would say short answer, yes, our coastal models enable predictions and forecasts for harmful algae blooms. You had mentioned the model WCOFs, or the West Coast Operational Forecast System, in the last episode. Could you talk a little bit more about that? So what makes WCOFs so awesome is that not only does it use that data assimilation for accurate physical modeling, but it also you know, has a product called EcoCoast, which gives fisheries habitat information. It is going to be connected to something called CHARM, which is a California harmful algae bloom uh, mapping model to, so that people on the coastlines can understand where harmful algae blooms are, when they're going to occur, when they're going to terminate. And then it also has an ocean acidification and hypoxia aspect so that fisheries uh, decision makers can understand where they're going to have areas of low oxygen and where ocean acidification is impacting coral reefs and uh, bivalves, anything that uses calcium carbonate in their processes. So this model does everything from physics to fish, and it's the one that I like to talk about most because it does so much. It answers so many questions for coastal communities. We had talked about how user and stakeholder needs and requirements are constantly changing and evolving. Where do you see the future of modeling going? How will NOS adapt to that? The stakeholder needs are constantly changing, and I see NOS adapting to it through their use of IUSE and and through the open minds of OCS, NGS, and and co-ops. IUSE being the the organization that's going to work with regional associations, the academic community, to really increase the breadth of of our um, impacts, of our capabilities, uh, and bring it into NOS operations. As far as the future and in meeting these stakeholder needs, I really see, you know, space being being a big part of this, you know, getting information from satellite data and from in situ uh, sensors within the ocean, AUVs, gliders, things like that. So in situ in this case would mean uh, sensors or other devices that are gathering data within the ocean in real time. I see really technology playing a real big role in getting information in real time, reliable data that can be assimilated or entered right into a model so that we can have real time information in a changing world. And it's it's gonna be tough as far as predictions go because usually your predictions are, are based on history, right? Well, in a changing world, it's tough to predict based on history. And especially with all of these new technologies, it's gonna to be tough. It's going to be, it's exciting to be part of this uh, new era of technology and understanding how our world works, but it's also going to be very challenging to figure out where efforts need to be first, uh, how to prioritize, and how we're going to make everything come together at the end. I asked Tracy what she would like our listeners to come away with from listening to both of these podcast episodes. The one thing that I want everybody to, to take away from this is that everything in this world is connected and that we are trying to understand what those connections are. But until then, understand that your actions every single day impact someone else. And modeling is the way that we're going to make all of those connections through all those data points and try best to protect our communities, our ecosystems, our public health on our coastlines and inland.
now and in the future. If you want to learn more about modeling, check out our show notes. This is the NOAA Ocean Podcast. Thanks for listening. Catch all of our episodes by subscribing to us in your podcast player of choice.